And I think that Ikigai is all about that because Ikigai is the thing that helps each student to understand those things about themselves, to think, what do I want to do? What does make me happy? How am I most creative? Um, you know, who are the people influencing my life? What are the values that I have? And likewise, as a teacher, you need to be aware of those things because that can inform the choices that you're making. I kind of mentioned this earlier in the ways that you're interacting with your students and so on. So for me, I think that this underpins that basic human relational aspect of education. This is Nick Kemp with the Ikigai podcast, Japanese wisdom for a fulfilling and meaningful life. Find your Ikigai at ikigaitribe.com. Hi, this is Nick Kemp of the Ikigai podcast, and my guest today on episode 29 of the Ikigai podcast is Dr. Caitlin Kite, a former behavioral ecologist who holds a PhD in applied science. Currently, Caitlin, you are an education researcher and leader of the academic development and skills teams at the University of Exeter. In that role, you help academics and support staff reflect on their education-facing activities and improve their teaching and learning techniques. I should add that you are also pursuing your second doctorate, an education doctorate, examining self-study as a reflective practice for educators, which relates to the topic of this podcast, Ikigai in Education. And to add to all this, you're a licensed Lego series play facilitator. And of course, you were a member of the first cohort of Ikigai Tribe and a very good friend. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So it's a real joy to have you on and this should be a exciting and fun conversation. And something I've learned about you through our uh, friendship is you have many loves, and that includes a love for birds, uh, music, wildflowers, photography, um, doodling, which uh, you do every day, and all these other hobbies and interests. But one of your ikigai seems to be birds. So when and how did that love or that ikigai for birds begin? So this is a question that I've gotten a lot over the years because when I started off doing my biosciences research, I went into birds. I did a lot of field jobs before I became an actual scientist, and it was always about birds. Um, and, and to be honest, I'm not entirely sure why I was always so interested in birds, but I do know that when I was young, I had uh, a bird book from my great-grandmother, and it was you know, one of those older, I, I won't say it's antique, it's maybe vintage. Um, one of those older books where they're just made an entirely different style than now. So it was just really nice hardback linen cover with these lovely hand-drawn illustrations. And it wasn't all the birds, but it was kind of, I think, common backyard birds. And next to each picture, there was a little space where you could take notes. And my great-grandmother had written in dates and comments where she had seen these things and gotten excited about it and written it down. And I think there was just something about that that always seemed really compelling to me, really human. It kind of expressed that there was just this nice feeling that could emerge from seeing a bird. And I think that that stuck with me. And so I, I then kind of was on the lookout. And when I was maybe Oh, I don't know, seven or eight, my dad took me on a, a guided nature hike and there was a naturalist there who was identifying 
various types of wildlife and plants that we encountered. And when we were walking through the, the woodland, we heard this bird not too far away. And he said, oh, that's an oven bird. And I think that was the first time that someone had just heard a thing and spontaneously been able to identify it without ever seeing it. And I thought, wow, this is like magic. <laughs> I want to be able to do that. That's so neat. And, and you know, just I think that was kind of in the back of my mind as a goal then forever, you know, after that. And so little by little, it was just birds everywhere, birds in books, going out birding, looking for birds in movies, you know, that sort of thing. It just grew until it became the thing that I did professionally for, for many years. Wow. Yes. My, my father actually, as he got older, developed a love for identifying birds where he lived. He lived in rural New South Wales and had a lot of property and him and his, uh, my stepmother, so his second wife would, yeah, they'd be able to identify all these birds and take photos and send them to me. So they're, they're fascinating animals. And obviously, yeah, you, you studied them as part of animal communication. And so was, was that the tweets and, and calls of birds, was that inspired you to, to study animal communication? Yeah, I think that early encounter with the naturalist who was able to hear it and just identify it by ear only, you know, that seemed just really amazing. And, and there was a kind of a romance to that idea of, you know, I want to be that person out on my own in nature, communing, <laughs> able to understand, you know, animals, speaking with them like Snow White. But I think, so when I first started doing research. You know, as a scientist, you, you don't always know these things when you're young and going through school. You don't just pop into animal behavior at university. You first have to take, you know, the fundamentals of biology. And so there I was studying meiosis and mitosis in the laboratory thinking, gosh, this could not be further from what I really want to do. And little by little, I did get in there and, and I, I was able to do research, but it was, it was not with the birds right on. And I just really wanted to be able to, to, to spend all day just watching birds and, and listening to birds and thinking, what are they doing? and Why are they doing that? And when I was a master's student, I did go to a talk by Donald Kruzma, who's kind of one of the fathers of bird communication in, in the U.S. He's an um, American researcher. And he had recorded, and this is what he did. So he kind of pioneered this field of recording birds and analyzing their sounds and understanding what are they doing and how are they doing it and why. And he had recorded a bird while he was there at the venue, which was this lovely natural park. And he was playing it and he had taken out his parabolic microphone and he'd recorded it into his computer. So there he was playing it back to us. And then he was slowing it down. So you could hear it at half time and a quarter time and an eighth time. And you could hear all of the intricacies of what the birds were saying, if you like. And that was really the moment for me where I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. It's not just that I want to, to be watching birds or thinking about birds, but this audio thing is incredible because you could see that they lived in a whole other world because they have much better discrimination temporally than we do. So they can hear all those little details that we can't. And I just thought, oh, this is mind-blowing. The animals live in a different world than we do. They can completely perceive it differently. And that was something that I really wanted to think about. And it was, therefore, not just about the birds, but kind of what the implications were for people and for all organisms and the fact that each of us really exists in whatever world is created by our bodies. I mean, that was just mind-blowing and really fascinating to me. Birds are fascinating when they're 
especially in the morning. So sometimes I'll go for a morning walk and you see they're so lively and they seem so focused and uh, I don't know what they're <laughs> talking about, but <laughs> it's like they're, uh, they're an ikigai. They're, they just seem to be doing what they're meant to be doing and it's a real joy to be present to that and, and listen to all this activity and they're tweeting and, and flying about. Yeah, I think something that I find really fascinating when, when you think about any kind of um, behavioral ecology and animal behavior research is there's always this temptation to anthropomorphize a little bit, right? Because you think, ah, oh, what they're doing is clearly what I would be doing. It clearly <laughs> means this because this just seems, you know, it seems right. But, we, you know, we know after you do these really carefully calibrated studies, you think actually what they're doing is this and that's not what I expected. But at the end of the day, there are still things where we think, they are doing something that's quite human. Uh, and one, of the, one example of that is we know that birds tend to sing a lot in the morning because the conditions are right. Um, just it's really good physics for their sound to carry. And so they, they do it in the morning. Um, they've just awakened. And so they, they get a bit of food, they get their energy. And then once they've got their energy, they can do their calling to try to get their mate. And so on. like we have very functional explanations. However, one of the things I love is that we, we also do see that birds sometimes seem to be singing and calling purely for the joy of it. And also sometimes they seem to be practicing. So they'll sit and very quietly just kind of sing to themselves to get better at something. And I love that kind of thing because it just seems so human. Wow. And I think probably there is some aspect where, you know, we all have these underlying motivations where sometimes things are just joyful or we just want to get a little bit better at something. And I love that there's that connection in how we approach these, these universal tasks, if you like. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know they, they practiced singing like we, we would. So that's, that is fascinating. So I'm sort of beginning to understand why you have this deep love for them. <laughs> and it's interesting, we'll, we'll talk about this now, but one of your favorite birds is the vulture which you mentioned on a radio show. So would you like to explain why you have this um, love for vultures where most people probably wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely vultures have not always been uh, my favourite group of birds, and I have had different favourites over the years. Uh, an early favourite was the blue jay because when I was out banding birds. So we capture birds and mist nets and then put bands on them so we can track where they go and what they're doing. Um, and I caught a, a blue jay and it just watched me the whole time. Like, I've got my eyes on you. I know what you're doing. You're not outsmarting me. And I just loved its attitude. But, but vultures, one of the real reasons that I like them, you've just mentioned, is that a lot of people don't. And I think that they really get a bad rap and they're not um, understood very well by a lot of people. You know, in, in my part of the world, they're called buzzards. So I live in the UK, and in the UK, a buzzard is a hawk. It is a bird. It's a predatory bird that will target things and kill them. Uh, and in the US, what we call buzzard is a vulture. And vultures do not typically, for the most part, they don't go hunting for things. They just eat carrion that's left over. And, and so there's this real misunderstanding where people malign them because they think, oh, they're going to kill my pet rabbit or my chickens or my lambs or whatever. And that's not true. And actually what they're doing is serving this wonderful purpose in the ecosystem where they're taking things that no longer otherwise have a purpose 
And they're breaking them down and returning the little bits of them into the environment so they can come back as plants, fungi, animals, whatever. And I think that's amazing. Like what a what better role than to be the link between something dying and something being reborn, you know, not to to get overly floral about it. But for me, that's such an important part in the ecosystem. And I think it's such a shame that people don't understand how they do that. And and in fact, in places like Africa and India, they're severely threatened because it's been misunderstood for so long and, and there have been poisoning events that have killed them off. And so those functions are no longer being fulfilled. And I find that really tragic because it's this lovely part of the cycle of life. This is what I like about you. You have this love of learning, but you also have this love of understanding and and seeing things from either a different perspective or more genuine perspective. And then you have this love of teaching and lecturing and and sharing knowledge. And you did host a radio show called The Wild Side, I think at the University of Exeter. And you covered all these fascinating subjects, including your love of vultures, but also things like the biology of cheetahs. um, Yeah, the social networking of vultures the evolution of violins, <laughs> and the science of flowers and fruits. So that's, yeah, I'm sort of watching you on YouTube going, gee, Caitlin has all this incredible knowledge. So would you like to talk about that radio show? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the show was on Source FM, which is a community radio station down in Falmouth in, in the UK. And the reason I got into it was that there were some lecturers from my department at the University of Exeter that had been invited on to be kind of guest experts in, in someone's show. And, and one of them said, well, you know, you do a lot of science outreach. Why don't you do a radio show? And, and I really didn't like the idea of sitting in a, a studio and talking for an hour. I thought, oh, that feels like a lot of pressure. Like, what could I do that would be that interesting? Um, and it was also kind of funny because my father uh, was a radio journalist. And so I spent a lot of my childhood in the studio in his <laughs> office playing and thinking, oh, this is quite fun, but never thinking, well, I will do this one day. But I, I went ahead and followed that up because it seemed to be something that they wanted uh, and I worked there at the time and I thought, well, if they want us to have a presence, then I'll go investigate this. But then I ended up being really glad that I did because, well, for a number of reasons. For one thing, community radio is a fantastic environment. Uh, you really do see people banding together to bring forth the diversity of voices. Uh, so at my, at my station in particular, they wanted to make sure that single moms people who were disabled, uh, people of color, anyone with uh, not the typical view for the demographic down in our area, they wanted to lift up those voices. And I loved being a part of that. But also what I found was that even though I'm I'm a very experienced lecturer and, and teacher, I was absolutely terrified the first few times that I went into the studio. It was just awful. Like I couldn't eat for hours and was so racked with nerves and so it was really interesting for me to kind of go back to square one with being in the public and working working through that was really, I think, helpful because eventually I got to a point where I said, right, you, you cannot be nervous anymore. You have got to get over this. Setting that aside has really helped me everywhere else as well. I now have just kind of gotten over my fear of, of talking and doing things in public. But what I found really amazing was that I had license to do whatever I wanted. As long as I didn't swear or play music with swears in it, they basically said, sure, just put your own stuff together. And so 
I had the ability to share just whatever I was interested in or what I was reading about. Um, I often, at the time I was blogging a lot, so I would often read these papers and write a blog about them and then talk about them on air as well. And I thought, no one is going to find any of this interesting. I surely am just talking to myself right now. But then I would go out and people would say, hey, aren't you that person who has that radio show? I was listening to you talking about, you know, asteroids or, or bird communication. And I thought, isn't this amazing? People are tuning in. And many people said, well, that was really interesting. Or I, I never knew that before. Thank you for sharing that. And it was just really rewarding to know that all these ramblings, actually other people found that stuff interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, I should point out it was a solo radio show. So you weren't interviewing guests. And so you had to prepare and organize your notes in a way that was friendly to a radio audience. And that that is hard to do. I've done that. I've done a podcast, solo podcast, and you, yeah, there's a lot of prep. And so you just mentioned you'd be often sharing what you've, you've blogged about or what you'd been reading. So that's obviously how you went about selecting topics. You just shared topics that you were personally interested in? Yeah, I tried to let it come organically. So I would kind of think, you know, what have I seen in the news this week? Or what have I read about? Or have I had a discussion? Uh, And and sometimes it was quite timely in terms of just the, the general, you know, news coverage that society was aware of. So people would clearly understand why it was I was talking about a certain thing. But other times it was more that I had a very random conversation in the in the corridor with a colleague and I thought, hey, you know, I didn't know that or I want to know more about that. And so I started reading for my own interests and then I thought, well, I can just package this up. And and to be honest, it, it probably would have been more interesting if I had interviewed people or had other little bits if I'd done, if I'd had more variety in general. But I... I didn't exactly feel comfortable with that. I was worried about relying on guests. Could I find enough people? Would they want to come on? And so I just did what was easiest, which was rely on myself. And that's really funny because that's actually exactly the style of teaching that we, in my job, I tell teachers not to do that. (laughs) So I spend like two and a half years doing the thing that I tell people not to do. But I do think it can be well done. I don't think I always did it well. I mean, I will be honest about that. But I think that people who are excited about something, who have a good sense of narrative, who can find interesting facts, I do think that it's just fascinating to sit and listen to those people. Um, like I said, I'm, I was not always one of those people, but I do think there's something really lovely about kind of tapping into that human tradition of just telling stories and learning from others telling stories. And so I kind of enjoyed dabbling in that myself. Yeah, so this taps into what I'm going to present in this episode, and it's this idea, you obviously found that those topics were worth teaching. You thought, if I'm going to spend an hour talking about this and who knows, two or three hours preparing, it's worth teaching the evolution of violins or the <laughs> the um, the habits of vultures or asteroids. And so I think for you, teaching is a type of ikigai. And I actually learned this on my last episode that we can use the word teach and add the suffix guy 
and that becomes oshiegai. So the, the verb for teach in Japanese is oshieru, and when compounded with gai becomes oshiegai, which means you feel it's something worth teaching or perhaps you've got a, a student or many students you feel that they are worth teaching. And so it's another example of taking gai and adding it to a verb. So we've got verbs like hataraku, that becomes hataraki gai, so something worth uh, work worth doing, or asobu, which means play, asobi gai, play worth doing or activities worth doing. And now we have oshiegai. And I, I think I share this with you. There is something enjoyable about sharing knowledge and, and things you learn and almost sharing that with others as a gift. And I think you, f- you find a sense of purpose in that. So, yeah, when did you realize you wanted to teach and share knowledge? This is another question that I often get, um, <laughs> like the bird question. And this one I actually think is even funnier because with the birds, I can't exactly specify a thing. With teaching, what I can say is that I always swore I would never teach. Um, so there are many different educators in my family, particularly on my mom's side of the family. And, and I grew up watching my mom as a teacher, and I could see how grueling it was. And she loved her job, and she did not say bad things about teaching. But I would see how she would have to stay up till two in the morning grading or, or whatever. And I thought, wow, that, that does not seem like a good work-life balance. I definitely don't want that. Uh, so I always swore I wouldn't do it. And, you know, here I am. But I, I considered myself a communicator for a really long time. I was a writer basically from when I was a little girl. I remember the moment that I was first writing a story and thought, wow, this feels amazing. I'm, I'm filled with excitement about this. And I always knew that I liked communicating, which was a real blend of both of my parents. And at some point, I kind of realized that actually all this communication that I was doing, all this outreach about science actually was teaching. And so I could call it whatever I wanted to call it. But the end game for me was always giving people the information that I thought they would need or would value, would want, so that they could make decisions, so they could make decisions that were well-informed and not just kind of random gut instinct sort of things. And really, that's that's what teaching is, isn't it? You're trying to, to give someone the tools that they need to navigate through life. And so I had to eventually give up and realize that actually I'd been doing this all along and setting myself along this path, whether I wanted to openly admit it or not. And at that point, I said, right, let's just double down and just do it. Let's just focus on that and really see what we can get out of this. So how long have you been in this communicating or this teaching role? It seems like quite a while now. Well, when I was in high school, if not before, I, I definitely would read my friends' papers and proofread them and give them advice for making them better. Um, I would kind of informally help friends with, you know, math homework or, or whatever. And so that was clearly an early form of teaching. It was peer, peer teaching, but it was teaching. And that just kept going all, all through college. So I would tutor people on how to use computers back in the day when we were all first getting our first computers. <laughs> and I was young and I had all this native digital literacy and so on. I, I would tutor older people who were uncomfortable with that. I eventually started writing. I started writing magazine articles. And I always liked something that was more of an informative style versus an editorial style. So in all of these little things I was finding for myself, 
I was exploring ways of giving people information to make their lives easier. So I would say that really I've been doing this for over 20 years. Wow. There you go. Yeah, there seems to be this idea of a sense of purpose or or making sure it was useful so your students could then achieve something or, or do something out of that. And maybe that ties into this idea of um, share guy. And now you've you've been promoted recently as education researcher and, and, and leader of the academic development and skills teams at Exeter University. So does that role involve more or, or less share guy? What we do in my team, we have staff that face students and also fa- staff that face staff. And before I was... Before I moved into this role, I was doing a lot more of kind of staff facing, actually working with the staff. And now I oversee that, but I still dabble a little bit. And in that work, the whole goal of that is to help people to be better educators. So we are supporting them and understanding about pedagogy and curriculum and, and so on. And what I really started to understand as I delved into education theory, and I won't go off on a tangent here and bore everyone, but really <laughs> education is the mechanism by which society decides what are we going to pass on? What, what do we need the next generation to know? And that's closely tied to what do we want the next generation to be able to do? And in the West in particular, we often have this fixation, you know, especially Recently, this wasn't always the case, but we want people to be like good little workers. We want to prepare them to be able to do a job. And often when we are developing new degree programs, we actually start by saying, right, if someone gets a degree in this field, what is it that they would be expected to do by an employer? And then we work backwards from there. And that's not necessarily the way that other societies see this or that people earlier on in time saw this. So, for example, the Greeks we're really interested in the good life. So what do you need to know to be able to live a good life, whatever that looks like? Uh, In the Confucian approach, it's kind of, you know, what traditions do we want to pass on so that you can keep up what the ancestors did and, and maintain the culture in that state? So we have all of these different ideas about what is it that we need to pass on. And In figuring that out, whichever your kind of in-game is, we're thinking about what are the competencies you need to have, what are the learning outcomes you need to achieve, therefore, what are the teaching activities we want to employ, the assessments and things like that. And I do think that all of that's really important. Education does not happen in a vacuum. It's associated with your societal values. So, of course, that's important. But underlying that is also each teacher's interest in what they value and what they want to imbue within their education and within their students. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot with our colleagues that, you know, you need to be aware of what it is that you actually have control over and where you're making decisions that are purely just down to you. So why are you choosing to teach this thing rather than that thing? Is that okay? Is that the right thing to do? Do you realize that there might be some hidden curriculum here if you're choosing A over B? What are you not choosing? What are you advocating? And I think that's really fascinating because that really is the, the crux of the Oshiega, I think. It's what is worth teaching and how are you making that choice? And how, how do you balance out those choices across the personal, the societal, the organizational? What about what the students want? And so you have to keep all of that in scope. And that's what we're trying to help people to understand how to do. And it's a really complex process, but also really fascinating.
Hey there, Nick Kemp here, and I wanted to touch base and let you know about my new course, the Fine Juru Ikigai Course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Fine Juru Ikigai Course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. If you are interested in learning more about the Fine Juru Ikigai Course, please visit ikigaitribe.com. Now back to the episode. Well, you seem very passionate about it, and I did some research on your website and found a quote, I think, that sort of encapsulates what you've just shared. So I'll read the quote. I am passionate about finding creative ways to educate, no matter the audience or the setting. This is something I frequently lecture on, and in order to keep my content fresh, I often try my hand at new techniques. And I think I learned that from you. When uh, you offered to do the, we'll talk about this later, but you offered to do a Lego um, serious play session for our group related to Ikigai. And I thought, wow, who is this Caitlin lady? She's <laughs> she's already wanted to teach Lego in my Ikigai tribe. And I thought, wow, this will be cool. And so we, we did do that. And that was lots of fun. So yeah, you are very passionate about finding creative ways to educate and so I think this led you to now pursue your second, or you are pursuing your second doctorate in education with a focus on self-study as a reflective practice for educators. And I have this idea, maybe this led you to learning about Ikigai? Yeah, it did actually. When I was teaching a bit more than I am now, one of the things that I taught was doctoral supervision. And I would often go in and talk, not just to supervisors, but also to doctoral students to hear about what are their concerns, what are the things that they're worried about, so I could take that to their supervisors and say, here's how you can help. Uh, And in one session, I was invited in as a panelist to talk to the PGRs, the postgrad researchers, about next steps with their careers. So what are they going to do when they graduate and go on into the world as baby doctors? And one of their real concerns was, you know, what if I don't land a job in in academia? And that is becoming increasingly a challenge where people get a PhD and then they can't stay in a university because there are just not enough jobs. And it's, it's something that really worries people. And obviously I got a PhD, but I did not become a professor. And so I I always try to help them feel a bit more secure. You know, there are many options and it actually ultimately doesn't matter what your job title is. It matters. Are you doing something that, that makes you feel good? Are you doing a thing that you like? And in order to try to help communicate that idea, I was poking around. Well, no, I had been on social media and had seen Ikigai at some point, you know, a year or two ago. And I thought, oh, this would be a really good thing to take in and share with this group of students. I think this idea of this purpose-driven life and all that, I think they could really see this visual and understand what I'm talking about. And that was the Western Ikigai graphic. And so I poked around online to try to find that to take into this session. And when I did, I found your website, actually. And the students in that session really responded well. They all scribbled and said, what is this? I want to go find this. And they really liked the idea, which I thought was great. And I thought, oh, there's clearly something in this. But what I found really exciting in looking at your website was that the Western thing is really interesting and really useful. Just the concepts there are, are great philosophical prompts to think about things reflectively. But it looked like it was just the tip of the iceberg. 
about what Ikigai really could be or really was. And I wanted to learn more because that's exactly what I do. I like to dig deeper and I like to look at this reflective practice. And so that is what brought me to enroll on on the program and to really think about what is this philosophy and this approach and how could this maybe structure or support or feed into the work that I'm doing more generally, thinking about reflective practice as an educator. Yeah, that Venn diagram is inspiring and I think it's helpful. And I think it's important that um, Andreas Susanaga, who did create it, gets some recognition. And I've talked about this before, but it's, it's both fascinating and astounding that you change the word of one diagram and, and added sort of a mysterious Japanese word in the, in the center. And then it, then it goes viral because it was known as the purpose Venn diagram for a while. And there are blog posts on it that date back, I think at least five, six years ago. And, and they explain it as the purpose Venn diagram. So it is helpful, but yeah, it's, it's not really how Japanese would perceive Ikigai. And so what made you dig deeper to wanting to understand what it meant in a Japanese perspective? Well, by the time that I had found your website, the gap between when I first ran across the Western Ikigai and then your website, I had really started to explore much more in my own life things like meditation and mindfulness Tai Chi and Qigong. So I've done meditation since I was in high school, kind of on and off, not really seriously. But then I really started to study it more actively over the past 10 years or so. And I started to explore it in these other forms as well. So not just just the passive, I don't want passive sounds um, like I'm insulting it, but I mean that in contrast to the more physical types of meditation like Tai Chi and Qigong. But all of those, as I started to explore them, I thought these are really having an impact on my life. I can really see how this is changing me and making me feel happier and more settled. And I, I think I can kind of see more clearly and make decisions more wisely. And, and I like this. And actually, when I first started my doctorate, that's what I thought I was going to investigate, mindfulness practice in educators. But alongside that, I so I'm also a poet. And I, you said earlier, I, I doodle. Um, I, that is kind of a recent development. But I used to be more into photography and art. And, and I've always been drawn to Eastern style. So I really like haikus. I really like Japanese art. I have a ton of birds around my house, uh, as you might have gotten from what I said earlier. And many of those are in an Eastern style, so Japanese or Chinese. And what I really like is how in many of those Eastern representations, whether it's in writing or in visuals, there is this effort to get rid of all of the unnecessary stuff and just focus in on the spirit of the thing. And so often, and this is especially true of the Zen approach, of course, where it's really stripped down just the essence. So it's the barest mm-hmm. little bit of ink on the canvas and just a few words in the haiku. And there's something about that process of really distilling that that really appeals to me. And so based on this dual thing about my interest in those reflective styles and also my interest in seeing the world in a certain way and communicating a world in that that kind of Eastern way, I thought, you know, maybe the Eastern Ikigai, the Japanese Ikigai, would offer me something different. Maybe it would be quite different, not just from that Western version, but also from the other styles of reflection and meditation and contemplation that I have looked into. And so I just wanted to learn a bit more and see 
does this appeal to me the way that these other things from that culture appeal to me? This is interesting because I think your participation in the first cohort really made me think about Ikigai in education. And through the discussions we we had, I did find a quote from Professor Hasegawa on his website and thought, that's interesting. I put it in the program and it was something I shared with you guys. And the quote was, as Ikigai can be a guideline for the individual's way of life, it is a topic for interdisciplinary research, psychology, pedagogy, and philosophy. Now, <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't know what pedagogy meant, so I had to look it up. So maybe maybe not everyone knows. So, And you, you mentioned it before, so obviously it's related to education, but what is pedagogy? Yes, it's the, the kind of sweet of approaches that we use for teaching and supporting learning. And it's often used kind of, I don't think we always use it the way that we should, to be honest, but it's used to kind of indicate both the suite of things and also the study of and understanding of that suite of things. Uh, So it's really just all the different education theories and the different styles of activities and the different approaches that you might take in order to help students learn. And, and going back to that quote, I certainly see Higai as a topic for research in both psychology and philosophy, and I think you would agree. But I'd like to get your thoughts as a topic of research for pedagogy. What are your thoughts on that? Can Higai, obviously it has become a topic of research for you in that context. Well, I think first of all, what I want to say, I mean, this may might seem a little bit random here, but I, I want to say that... I'm really aware that Ikigai is an Eastern thing from a particular culture, and I am not Eastern, I am Western, and I'm always really worried about thinking of kind of cultural appropriation and making sure that I'm not, you know, stealing someone else's ideas and misunderstanding them. And and so I always kind of worry, if I say these things, might I be missing something or might I be Mm -hmm. treading on toes? And I hope that that is not the case. Um, But certainly from what I know, and from what I've seen and and from kind of how I feel when I'm thinking about these ideas and employing them in my practice, it really touches on something that I think is fundamental in the teaching that I do and the interactions that I've had and the things that I've read. And really education involves a lot of personal motivation and dedication on the behalf of the students on the behalf of staff, you know, everyone has their own perspective, they have their own goals, they have their own interests. And you need to try to understand what those are. One of the things we talk about a lot in teaching teachers is to center students and to really see each student as an individual and to don't don't think of students all as a big homogeneous group, but think of each student as, as different and try to give each student what they need in order to achieve learning. And this is what you would need to do with your colleagues as well. This is what you should do with yourself. And so it does apply both to students and teachers. And I think that Ikigai is all about that because Ikigai is the thing that helps each student to understand those things about themselves, to think what do I want to do? What does make me happy? How am I most creative? Um, you know, who are the people influencing 
my life? What are the values that I have? And likewise, as a teacher, you need to be aware of those things because that can inform the choices that you're making. I kind of mentioned this earlier and the ways that you're interacting with your students and so on. So for me, I think that this underpins that basic human relational aspect of education. But then, of course, it can also impact the content itself because you can use it to structure whatever it is you're teaching about. So you, you need to understand those basic aspects of humanity of your students and of yourself and your colleagues. But you can also be thinking, well, okay, if people are valuing, if they're motivated by wanting to progress into a certain career that's going to give them purpose and make them feel fulfilled, what if I framed this information as something that's going to help them be more employable? Or what if I use case studies from industry to help show how this will actually be applied in real life? And so just little things like that, where you're choosing how to present the information, can allow you to connect better with your students and help them learn better. So I think that it has a role, you know, underpinning, but also embedded throughout all of teaching. Yeah, you touched on values. And I know that's one area you did some work related to Ikigai. I think you presented Ikigai in relation to, or values in relation to Ikigai to to teachers. Uh, How was that? How did that go? And how was that received? I really want to have a conversation with colleagues about values. And what I find really frustrating is that often people don't seem to think that it's very interesting or very exciting. And so often, if you have a session on values, you only get a couple of people, uh, which is which has been the case with me. So I have a couple of colleagues in particular who are really interested in values. And these are folks actually who do a lot of work in ethics. So I've got a colleague who's on an ethics committee uh, for our department, and I've got another who helps set up an ethics conference. And people who deal with ethics on a daily basis really understand how important values are because values inform ethical decisions. And so when you're sitting there filling out ethical paperwork, it's kind of, it's right in your face. I think a lot of people don't just in the daily course of things, they don't think, what are my values? Uh, And how are my values manifesting in what I'm doing? And that is true of me as well. I'm not saying that I walk around (laughs) with this right in front of me at all times. Uh, and, And I actually think that's really fascinating. I actually think if you look at schooling all the way down to little kids, we don't really, in, especially not in the way that they used to back in ancient times, we don't say, here are the values we want you to have. Now, in some cases, those values are embedded throughout. So this is what I referred to with the hidden curriculum. So by talking about certain things or excluding certain things or discussing stuff in a certain way, we are absolutely touching on values. But we don't necessarily explicitly say, right, one through 10, here are the values you should have. And I think we try to not do that because we know that we live in this diverse culture. We don't want to to be top down. In in theory, teachers don't. I think the system, this is a whole other discussion. I think the system is a bit more controlling. But teachers, I think, try to generally be open. But, But what we don't necessarily do is say, right, whatever the values are, here is how you go about interrogating them. Here is how you can think about what your own values are and understand how that impacts your life. And I find that really amazing because this is kind of fundamentally important, right? And I certainly had a family where we had discussions about values and it was quite clear what the values were. So I always felt that I had a pretty good hold on how to think about values. 
I think a lot of people don't have that. And that's not a critique. I think it's kind of fallen out of practice because people aren't as religious. And that used to happen in religion much more. And so now we just don't typically sit around the dinner table talking about these things. And if you don't have an understanding of what your own values are, and you also don't have an understanding of how to figure out those values, then you might find that you are consistently making decisions that are just all over the place. And you're not really putting yourself on the life path that you want. You're not ending up where you want to be. Things don't really feel satisfying because they're not quite right in some way. And what I really like about Ikigai is that it gives you this way of really putting that right in the center of all things. Because it's, it's acknowledging, yes, this is fundamentally important. You need to tap into that and know what it is that you care about and order those things so that you can make those choices in a deliberate fashion. And you see how that links up to your relationships. You see how it links up to your job and so on. And I really like the fact that it pulls all of those things together and shows especially how values run through all of them and just really gives people an easy and quick way to say, okay, here's how I can figure this out. And here's how I can organize my life around that. That's something that stood out for me. So when I did some research on these pioneering Ikigai researchers, so there was this literature boom in the 60s, 70s and 80s in Japan on Ikigai. And every prominent author or researcher talked about the importance of values, knowing your values and living in harmony with them and and how Ikigai gives you a mindset for almost understanding your values. And then I thought, yeah, we have our personal values and maybe obviously, you know, they are influenced maybe by our parents or our country or our religious beliefs. But I do think we've got to take time to reflect and work out what is important to us and then think about how we are expressing these values in our daily life, in our relationships. And then I started thinking about, wow, you know, Japan as a culture has these unique values that we can learn from. So they have things like incredible resilience. They have both collectively with all these disasters and, and things they, they seem to um, survive and you never hear Jap- Japanese complaining about their natural disasters or saying things, why does this happen to us? They, they quietly persevere, but also as individuals, they're incredibly resilient people. They, you know, work too long. They, they seem to, yeah, have this incredible work ethic, which is probably not really healthy. But they're very humble. Um, they have this um, fighting spirit. They have an appreciation of beauty. So, yeah, I think values are, are crucial and that we can actually rethink and almost choose, almost choose values we wish to aspire to. So I think it's it's really important. And I'm always saying... Ikigai's about living your values or living in harmony with your values, but it will, Ikigai will be elusive if you're living in conflict or if you're forced to compromise your values. And I think a lot of people do that every day in 
maybe in a relationship they're stuck in or in a job they just truly despise, but for whatever reason they, they stay in it. And to, to live your life in conflict with your values, yeah, would mean you, you're never going to feel icky guy. And I think our, our values and living in harmony with our values allows us to feel icky guy, which is really important. So I think, yeah, th- there needs to be some, you're right, I think when you talk about values, people roll their eyes and go, oh, here we go, values again. But maybe maybe Ikigai offers us a way to to think about them. Yeah, and I'd like to, um, if I could, I'd like to bring up something that you and I have talked about over email in the past, which is something that I think psychologists have written about. Certainly, I've encountered it through uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, where she's talking about how important certain terms are. And this is something that you see a lot in educational literature as well, about how ideas and the feelings associated with those ideas and and knowledge are really closely tied with specific words. And that there is this feeling where if, if you don't have a certain word for a certain thing that you're experiencing, of course, you're still experiencing that, but you can kind of organize your thoughts better around those feelings and emotions if you have a term that encapsulates it. And then when it comes up again, you're like, oh, it was that thing. It's that thing again. I see that. I understand what that means. And she, she in her book talks about specifically how this is a driver for the prominence of these foreign terms that become used often in marketing in the West. And, and we like these things like ikigai or like uh, huga or these other concepts that get imported. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about cultural appropriation, because to some extent, that absolutely can be. It's just it's slapped on because it looks kind of sexy and, and, you know, flashy and different. Yeah. But unbuying that and, and you know, when used in the right way, actually, that's that's so helpful. It's so powerful because it's giving you a term that allows you, use the word elusive earlier, and I think actually that's a great word here, it allows you to finally say, oh, all of these things I was feeling, they are wrapped up in a word or this elusive sense of what I need to achieve. Like, here it is. We have that one word that summarizes it. And for me, I think that's one of the really powerful things in Ikigai, is that with a single word, you've captured this wide-ranging realm of things that are all really tightly correlated and so important and and they all they all are different but they all are related and these are all things that I think teachers try to touch on with their students and maybe students try to touch on themselves with their own reflections but it's just so much that sometimes can lose track and feel overwhelmed but like you guys a really nice way to pull it all together and give you a sense of, oh, here is how I can understand that. And here is how I can work towards that. And I just find that phenomenally helpful. Yeah, it's one of the amazing things about the language, the Japanese language. They have these words that encapsulate, as you said, all these ideas or a, a thing we do understand and we understand the complexity of it, but we we have to at least talk about it all, explain it in a few sentences in English, but Japanese has this ability to encapsulate these ideas. And so, yeah, ikigai is one of them, but we, you know, we learned about yutori, this, this having this mental space where you're not overwhelmed, where you're not constantly stressed and worried, 
where you can consider others and you have the space to reflect on your life. And we just don't have a word that encapsulates that. Or ibashol, where that's another word that's, again, we have to think, okay, it's where you feel at home or where you can be yourself in a social context. And that's what I love about the Japanese language. You learn these words that represent a philosophy or a, a psychology, but it is slightly different. So then you have this joy of discovering what it means in this um, Japanese perspective. And it's sort of this long rabbit hole. You learn one word and then you, through that learning that one word, you find another word and another and it's it's never ending. So it's an absolute joy to study um, just Japanese words. But then behind all that, there's this casualness or this casual approach that they have because it becomes these words are so embedded in their culture they don't make it out to be these big things, which is fascinating. That itself is sort of a fascinating angle. And, you know, we don't go around saying, hey, <laughs> what's your life purpose? Or, you know, when do you feel that you can be yourself in a social context? But somehow they can encapsulate those ideas in everyday conversation, which is really interesting. So it is, it is fascinating. And I think, yeah, Ikigai can be used as a, a subject or a, like a concept in teaching. And I know you have plans to do that further. So what are your future projects on how, to, how you'll intend to use Ikigai in teaching? Well, this kind of helps me to actually close the loop. I didn't entirely finish answering your previous question. I went off on a bit of a tangent, um, but you were asking me about talking about Ikigai with with my colleagues. Uh, and and I think it's worth acknowledging. I mean, I don't want to date this podcast, but I think it's, it's worth acknowledging. We are still in the middle of this horrible pandemic and we've spent the last, you know, 18 months in, in lockdown. And, and this is actually why I think it has been a bit of a struggle to engage colleagues with discussions about continuing professional development things like, you know, let's talk about Ikigai and whatnot, because everyone is so tired that they can't focus on, um, you know, honing their practice, because at the moment, they're just trying to hang on. But despite that, and I think probably actually to some extent because of that, when I have mentioned Ikigai in, in little conversations with people on my team and elsewhere, I can see that it has really struck a chord with them. And they've said, you know, maybe can we talk about this again in, in the future? Because I think, especially right now, because everything is so hard and people have been pushed so far and they're really starting to think, what does matter? Actually going on holiday to Mexico would have been nice, but at the end of the day, does it matter? What matters is that I'm alive, I have my family and so on. So I think that actually people are in this kind of global moment of reevaluating stuff and they are looking for tools like Ikigai and, and words and, and frameworks to help them to do that. And I think that, that it will be really interesting to pursue this when, when people have a bit more headspace, perhaps after a couple of weeks of holiday. <laughs> um, but for sure, that is something that I intend to do. I have had interest in running little sessions to just kind of explain what the idea is, to start to 
bring into vocabulary some of these terms that you were actually just mentioning and, and how they can help people reframe what they are seeing and experiencing, uh, the, the framework and the different components of the framework that people could use for themselves to be thinking, okay, how do I prioritize things and how does this then impact? For those who support students, I think it's a very helpful thing to think, how can I do my coaching or my mentoring or my supervising and maybe give aspects of this to my students and, and involve these ideas in our conversations. So there are several different ways in which I'd like to repackage it to help people with what they are doing with others, but to also help them with their own personal reflections to, to structure their own contemplation as they make decisions. And certainly personally, it's the next step in my own research. So what I'm doing with my research is I'm, I'm engaging with a series of self-study techniques and then kind of seeing, well, how has this influenced my thinking and how is this influencing my practice? And I've been waiting for the, the kind of final version of the Ikigai framework, which we now have. Uh, and so I'm going to myself go through all of the activities from scratch, fill in my little framework, reflect on that, and then think about what the outcomes of that mean for myself as a teacher and then can then use that mindfully and see how that impacts my practice. So I will be using it as a teacher, but also as a researcher, as a reflective practitioner. Well, I'll be really excited for some feedback because, yeah, this the framework you're talking about is something I've, I've been working on and it's evolved based on the feedback of each cohort and it's been a journey and, and as I've gone through my own research, I've discovered all these new words with the help of people like Dr. Shintaro Kono and Professor Hasegawa. It's been really uh, interesting and, and a challenge to try and encapsulate Ikigai in a, a genuine or an authentic perspective. But it, it's funny you mentioned the pandemic, and I've been really hesitant to do and I probably won't do a pandemic episode. <laughs> but I, I do think this pandemic has made us contemplate or made us realise what's important in our lives. So for, for people who haven't been able to see family or travel, yeah, all those things they probably used to worry about, um, you know, their favourite TV show or <laughs> social media or they soon discover aren't that important. And, yeah, we've discovered what's important this last year and a half. And, yeah, it's, obviously it's been really hard for, for many people. Maybe for some people it's uh, reaffirmed what is important. Maybe they've been lucky. Maybe they've had their family near them and they've, they've been able to keep their job or maybe even flourish in their job as a result of the pandemic. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting time and that while I don't want to talk about the pandemic and related to Ikigai, I think it is this opportunity to reflect on what's important because basically I think a lot of people have anyway. Hmm. And I know for you, um, yeah, teaching seems really important. You, you have a love of learning. You have a love of teaching <laughs> so much so that you ended up teaching Lego <laughs> in the first cohort of Ikigai Tribe. So that, let's talk about that experience of being part of the first cohort and um, being a member of Ikigai Tribe 
and you are a, a valued member and it's a joy to talk to you and catch up with you. So, yeah, what was it like for you? Well, I think it would be hard to summarize and, and it's actually hard to separate out what I was doing within the classes themselves and what I was doing in parallel because I was also oh, this must have been, it was almost a year ago now, I guess. Wow, time, it's flying. Uh, (laughs) So at that time, I was also really doing a deep dive into the literature for my doctorate. And those two things really integrated. And for me, that was quite powerful. It had this really catalytic effect where I was reading about various ideas around biography and autobiography and values and meditation. I was I really covered a lot of ground in my doctoral reading, but then I would, I would sit in the discussion group that we had, and I would hear little bits of that and see how they fit together, and and each each of those areas would kind of magnify, and then jump me along in understanding to a, a, a next phase, and I just found it really inspiring, and I think it was a real combination of the idea of Ikigai itself and the concepts you were introducing us to, but also our cohort and the peer learning that we were doing within the cohort. So all, all the other five people plus you, we were all bringing our own perspectives and our own engagement with you know, psychology and, and therapy and reflection and contemplation and our own personal experiences from various uh, life situations, but also fields of study. And it was just this amazing space where I think we all really created a massive amount of learning that none of us would have gotten on our own without Ikigai, without the fellow tribe members and so on. And so when I look back to that, I actually think I probably wouldn't be doing because I did in the course of this kind of finalize my research project and start on it. I don't know that I would have finalized it in the same form that I have done or picked the same methods or come up with the same vocabulary and explored the same literature had I not done all of that because I was gaining words and understanding that I think I would not have encountered otherwise. So for me, it was fundamentally life-changing just the amount of learning that was happening. So it's been incredible. Yeah, it was it was an amazing group. And I was, when I did the first cohort and advertised that I hadn't, you know, I was expecting life coaches or business coaches. <laughs> Too much shock. You know, I've got people with doctorates or a master coach or these amazing, you know, people from all these different countries. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm, <laughs> you know, this is going to, how, how will this go? Because I was thinking, God, I've got really no academic background and I've never really done this before. I hadn't done webinars and I taught in Japan and I'd done consulting, but I thought, wow, this is different. And one thing I quickly learned was, wow, everyone, including myself, I'm learning so much from all these different people and all these perspectives. And I think the one thing we created was this environment to share and, and trust each other. And I thought that that's the most valuable thing. And mm-hmm. I think you, you would remember when one member, Julie, said, you know, Ikigai tribe is her ibashol, where she could be herself and that she could talk about things she normally didn't talk about with with other people. It kind of made me, wow, this this is what people want. We want to 
we want to share, we want to contribute, and we want to be able to do that in a safe environment where people are going to be receptive and and understanding. And I think that's, yeah, that's part of Ikigai, that, that social aspect where you, you have these intimate connections. And we, we discussed intimacy, how people tend to relate it to, you know, just physical physical love or whatever, but we can have these moments of intellectual or creative or emotional intimacy even on a, a Zoom call. So, yeah, it was a really special group and life-changing for me. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I'll be forever grateful for you guys who decided to invest in it and now it's obviously it's continuing and I'm, I'm trying to keep current members um, active and testing out these weekly calls. I, I think if um, if I can just throw this in there, I think it, it was really a masterclass in creating community. And, you know, that's something that has been on everyone's lips this past year and a bit um, in education because with students being dispersed all over the world, we've had to do everything online. And it has been really hard to create the same sense of community that you would have in a classroom. And I think that one of the things that that worked really well is that, you know, you yourself are just very genuine and very honest and very truthful. And that kind of sets a precedent. So you as the facilitator are saying, you know, this is how I am. This is how we can be in this space. And so I think all the rest of us were like, right, okay, well, then that's how I'm going to be as well. <laughs> and 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 what I really noticed is how open everyone was and how much that then created a connection. And, you know, I'm, I'm really introverted. So I'm quite happy to go stand in front of a classroom and, and talk or sit in a, a booth at a radio station and talk. But that's not the same as actually engaging with the person and exchanging ideas with them. Mm-hmm. I typically can be quite quiet and, and private. It takes me a long time to warm up to people. But even I in that space that you created, I was feeling really connected with people. I still am in touch with with not just you, but people in the cohort. I go back into the forum. I attend these weekly sessions. And I think that really shows that when you are talking about these sorts of things with people, you know, it, it's not just the environment, but it's also what's happening in the environment and what we're discussing. And when you are talking about your values and your relationships, and where you find meaning in life. These are really big things. And I think people don't often talk about them because they feel shy, or because they don't know, or whatever the case might be. And it really creates a kind of magic and a coherence, Mm. a glue, when you have those discussions. And it really drove home to me how important it is to make those connections with people, and to engage in that sort of community that you created for us. And I think for me, that also set for a goal. As an educator, I want to try to replicate that sort of feeling because it's it's so powerful. It was powerful. I look back with, I mean, I look back with all these fond memories of that first cohort. And then I realized, yeah, there was this initial challenge. And I had to make a really difficult decision after the first session. And it was something I really didn't like because it meant I guess I'd call it confronting something and (laughs) but I thought I have to do this I have to make this decision or it's going to compromise the harmony of the group and then I realized wow that's such a Japanese concept you know harmony of the group making sure all members in the group could be comfortable to share and talk 
And once I made that decision, yeah, it happened. And yeah, it was such a a special time and to look forward to each call and almost, you know, wanting it to go on <laughs> for years. But obviously that wasn't sort of, it's it's not possible to do that, but possible to create the same experience with new cohorts. And that's sort of, that's sort of my goal now is obviously I want to teach the concept and offer all these um, words and, and knowledge, but also create that environment where people can feel comfortable and hopefully, yeah, create a community or build a large community. And yeah, you were this amazing source of energy and positivity and knowledge. And we really had fun. We celebrated the end with your Lego session, which was, <laughs> which was really fun. And I got to experience, I mean, I never felt I was uh, the teacher or the leader of the, of the tribe. But it was fun to sit back and have someone else present something. And, you, yeah, you have this love of teaching and there seems to be a lot of ikigai but also guy in you. So, yeah, thank you so much for being a part of Ikigai Tribe and for contributing. And I, I look forward to your feedback as you share more ikigai in your role as um, this teacher, but also academic leader, but also just someone who loves helping others. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. So thank you for coming on to the podcast, Caitlin. Thanks very much for having me. And I look forward to to listening to all the other guests in the future as well. (laughs) So do I. Okay, bye. This episode was brought to you by the Find Your Ikigai course. Developed in consultation with Japan's leading Ikigai researchers, the Find Your Ikigai course is the only culturally accurate and evidence-based practical guide to the Ikigai concept. To learn more about the Find Your Ikigai course, please visit ikigaitribe.com.